You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. It was that wrong. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. Today, I'm excited to bring you actual audio from an actual in-person show. These past few months, we've held outdoor shows in New York, Boston, St. Louis, Atlanta, and D.C., as well as a few indoor shows with small private audiences. So over the course of the next few months, we'll be bringing you these stories as well as some that are still left over from our pre-COVID shows. So we're starting today with one of each. The theme of today's episode is Hazards. Specifically, the hazards scientists sometimes encounter when they're working in the field. The hazards in today's stories are very different, but I think you'll agree with me, both pretty scary. Our first story today is from Jonathan Feekins. It was recorded last September at the North Center Town Square in Chicago. This show was outdoors in an urban area, so please excuse any traffic noise you may hear in the background. The theme that night was vital. So approximately one lifetime ago, uh, my official job title was West Nile Virus Mosquito Technician, uh, which is about as amazing and ridiculous as it sounds. And basically what this job entailed is grabbing bags of mosquitoes anywhere from D.C. to Baltimore, from National Mall to Maryland wetland, and then chucking them either into a deep freezer, where I'd later sort them by species and I'd test them for the virus, or take a sampling of female mosquitoes and dissect their ovaries with extraordinarily tiny needles. Uh, and this was an amazing thing to me. Up to that point, I was 23 years old, and up to that point, I'd done a bunch of like science education jobs. I'd been a park ranger, I taught at space camps, I once worked at an anatomy museum where I had to spend my lunch hour searching for a stolen human kidney. But this was like my first big bore science research job, and I was super jazzed because mosquitoes come out at night, and so do I, so we were simpatico, you know what I mean? We got along fine. And one of the neat things about this job is that so long as I was able to swap out the traps each day before sundown, I could basically do the lab work whenever I wanted. Mosquitoes, if they're dead, don't really care when you're dissecting them. So I was able to basically, by about week one or two of this job, wake up about noon and then proceed to go pick up the equipment, swap out all the traps, roll into the zoo where we were working uh, by sundown, and then just listen to music until like 11 p.m. at night, at which point, every night of the week, I would then have to break out of the zoo. We were working in the zoo, in the laboratories. We were not technically zoo employees, so we had no keys. So consequently, every day I would leave work and have to roll up to the gate, scale the fence, and then leap out of the zoo, which is an incredibly effective way to terrify dog walkers. Just incredibly effective. 
I would do the like blade superhero landing on the sidewalk, look up, and there's some senator's aide with their Shiba Inu, like half a block up, just staring at me and then turning on the heel and power walking the other direction. And it doesn't help either. You can't yell after them. It's like, no, 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 I'm legit. You can't do this. Do you want to know more about disease ecology? Like I'm just the nerdiest mugger of all time. Like this is not something that works. And it was all well and good. And then I would just stay out until like two, three in the morning each night and do this whole thing over again the next morning. And this was sweet. And then about two months in, I woke up and I'm like, all right, time to go to work. I feel mildly warm. That's weird. But hey, it's DC in July. That's fine. And I proceed to go out to gather my traps and swap out all the stuff. And I'm getting there and I'm rolling up to one of my sites. It's this community garden in Anacostia across the river. And I'm like, yeah, this is feeling uncomfortable. Like I'm sweating more than I would be expecting to sweat. And also, where are these traps? I'm starting to like get a little bit confused and not quite in my right mind. And these traps are not easy to find, you know what I mean? Like we would use uh, dry ice to bring in the mosquitoes because carbon dioxide is to what they're attracted to. Uh, but consequently, we would hide these things. There's nothing that DC cops love more than a smoking thermos of dry ice next to the Smithsonian, you know what I mean? So we would try to find these things and sometimes, especially that day, I'm like, where are these things again? And I spent hours getting progressively just sweaty and wretched and confused, which again, also doesn't help when you stumble out of the bushes at a community garden and startle again some poor grandmother just trying to harvest a rutabaga, you know what I mean? And you're like, I'm just looking for the mosquitoes and then stumbling back into the forest again. This is not great PR. And eventually, as time goes on, I am ready to call it. I'm ready to say that I am in a terrible state, and I need to go possibly to a hospital as soon as I get some sleep. So I take the L, and I get in the car, and I go back to the zoo, which, again, not great to do when you're feverish. And I've never gotten back to the zoo that late, and everything is closed, and I'm circling the zoo trying to find an entrance, and it's only when I see an entrance that might be open, and I take a left, do I feel the car's wheels ramp up onto the sidewalk? Because no, I am not thinking clearly whatsoever. And I do recall a biker gently screaming at me about what in God's name I was doing. And no, I was not doing well. I don't know what I did with the car. <laughs> I can't remember that part. But I went to bed somehow, got up the next morning, went into work, and I say, hello, uh, I feel like death, slightly warmed over. Um, and oh yeah, by the way, and I hike up my leg, and there is now on my upper thigh a dinner plate-sized rash that is basically blossomed. Because one of the things about this job, too, is a lot of the places we were going also had ticks, you know? There was no monopoly on bloodsuckers that we had, right? And we had this guy in the lab who asked us to collect ticks because we were in a lot of the same places that they were. And they all looked at this, and they all kind of sucked in their teeth, and they said, that is 100% Lyme disease. That is 100% an acute case of Lyme disease. And you need to go to the hospital now. And so I call the hospital and I say, hello, how are you? Uh, my name is Jonathan. I absolutely have Lyme disease. I need medication as soon as humanly possible. I don't know if you ever called up to a hospital and self-diagnosed with a catastrophic illness and demanded medication. Not something they take kindly to, honestly. And they say, no, no, you can't, like, you got to come in first and we get tested and then you get the test results back. There's a whole process. 
And I say, that's, that's amazing. I totally get where you're coming from. I'm going to hand you off to this uh, lanky PhD fellow by the name of Ryan, who's done the past seven years of his life on Lyme disease, who's presently staring at my thigh. And so thankfully, Ryan is able to vouch for me and say, oh, yeah, maybe he should definitely get some antibiotics before sundown. And so I roll up to the hospital. And again, this is one of those things. You're kind of at a critical juncture. Acute Lyme is terrible. Chronic Lyme is worse, you know what I mean? If you don't get treated, it gets into your body. It causes, over the years, arthritis and brain fog and chronic fatigue. It's a catastrophic situation. And I roll in to this uh, doctor's room, and there's two guys there, and I drop trow, and both their faces just light up with joy. And they say, that is the most beautiful textbook case of Lyme disease that we have ever seen in our lives. Would you please be so kind as to wait a couple seconds while we get the camera and the interns? And I'm like, yeah, man, the science. And I'm just slowly dying on the inside. And they bring in everybody on the floor. And they basically are quizzing them on my half-naked body. They're like, hey, what's that? They're like, Lyme disease. They're like, yeah, it's amazing. High fives. And after 20 minutes of that, finally we are done and they give me literally over-the-counter doxycycline for $20. And that's how, 15 years later, I hopefully don't have white spots in my brain. <laughs> that was Jonathan Feekins. Jonathan has a species of earthworm named after him and once got kicked out of an all-you-can-eat restaurant for eating all he could eat. <laughs> his friends seem to enjoy his stories. Before we continue on today, I just want to remind everyone that if you want to support stories like today's stories, if you, like all of us at the Story Collider, believe in the power these stories have to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, you can sign up to support the Story Collider on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash the story collider. We so appreciate the support of our patrons. You can also check out storycollider.org for more information on upcoming shows and workshops. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our second story today is from Nancy Knowlton. It was recorded in the Before Times in June 2018 at Beer Baron in Washington, D.C. The theme that night was oceans. So in 1984, before most of you were born, I suspect, uh, my husband and I gave up our jobs at Johns Hopkins and Yale to move uh, to Panama to work for the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute called STRI for short. At the time, our friends and family thought we were actually pretty crazy to give up fairly prestigious jobs in US academia and move to the jungle, which is what they considered Panama, although even Panama City really looks more like Miami City than the jungle. 
And, uh, but we did it anyway because it, for, for two coral reef biologists, these were great jobs with coral reefs right next door. And plus, there were two jobs in one place, which is what we really wanted. Uh, so we could have a family. We didn't waste any time. Our daughter, Rebecca, was um, born about a, a year exactly after we got there. So it was Panama, however. So we had to learn a new language and a new culture. And we get home from work, and our heads were sort of throbbing from all the novelty. And it was also a country that was run by General Manuel Noriega. Now, uh, he was a not-so-benign uh, dictator. And he was uh, known uh, for throwing people he didn't like out of helicopters. And for that reason, uh, we talk softly in restaurants, because you never know who's going to be sitting at the next table. And uh, I learned to drive to work uh, through uh, big phalanxes of tanks with the guns pointing at my little car. And uh, actually, once after an attempted coup, which was pretty uh, violent on the streets, we, took, we were all given classes on what to do if your way is blocked by a burning car. Uh, it turns out what you do is you just smash right into the front of it or the back of it, and it turns around. In theory, I've never practiced it myself. Um, in, a, in any case, that's, that's what things were like when I got there. And it was, I was sort of like the proverbial frog in a slowly warming pot of water. But um, there was the science, which is, of course, why we went there. And uh, once a month, I would go to the San Blas uh, Islands off the Caribbean coast, work a little field station there. Uh, we'd, in the day, we'd go out and study snapping shrimp and corals, the organisms that I, both of which I love. And in the evening, we'd come home and write up our notes. This was a, just a few little bamboo huts on a sand island, no running water, kerosene lamps for uh, light. And, uh, and it, was, it was very, very simple and primitive, but you could do great science. There were also wonderful sunsets and sunrises. The stars were spectacular, and the thunderstorms were pretty awesome as well. And so as science goes, it was a pretty romantic, inspirational place. And for that reason, I, uh, after Rebecca was born, I used to bring her with me. And that's, in fact, what we were planning on doing in the middle of December uh, 1989, just after her fourth birthday, because my husband was heading off to France, as he likes to do, to do something or other. And, uh, <laughs> and so we were going to be on our own, so we decided to go to the San Blas. Now, by then, Panama had gotten even a little bit weirder. Uh, Manuel Noriega used to be on the payroll of the CIA, but because of his drug trafficking and money laundering, they eventually fired him. And by then, in fact, um, uh, we were being paid in wads of $100 bills, which we put in our bureaus because it was illegal for the U.S. government to do any business with Panamanian banks. Still, I didn't really worry too much about going to the San Blas, and so, um, because nothing special was likely to happen. It was just kind of chronically weird rather than acutely weird. And so we, um, so I went off with Rebecca and her uh, Panamanian nanny, uh, Agapita. However, on the 19th of December, uh, the U.S. invaded Panama. Some of you may remember that, at least in your history books. And, um, and we, but we were in the San Blas. We had no way of knowing that this was going on, uh, except for that on the morning of the 20th, two members of our team headed off to the local airport and uh, uh, thinking they were heading back on the, uh, to Venezuela for the Christmas holidays. But they came back within about 15 minutes with a fairly ominous tale of um, canceled flights, no flights, and fighting between US troops and Panamanian troops in Panama City. Uh, panicked, we radioed Stry, said, what should we do? Of course, they had no idea what we should do. They were dealing with a lot worse than we were. We were just on some isolated island. They were head 
bombs dropping and people shooting. Uh, and in any case, the options pretty soon narrowed quite quickly as a big boat full of armed soldiers arrived and said that we, all 11 of us on the island were going with them. And so I grabbed Rebecca, her favorite stuffed animal, and of course my data, I am a scientist, <laughs> and, and got in the boat. So we headed to the mainland where there was a small airstrip uh, carved out of the forest, and they said, uh, get out of the boat and walk to the end of the runway. And this didn't seem very promising because there was no airplane at the end of the runway. And in fact, as I walked on the uh, airstrip holding Rebecca's hand and talking to this really grouchy, uh, mean kind of guy who had, was in charge of this operation, saying, you know, you can't do this to us. We, we have international mission status. We're like the UN, and my best diplomatic Spanish, but he didn't seem impressed at all. And, uh, and actually, honestly, in about 15 or 20 seconds, I began to realize that we were likely to wind up as a pile of bodies at the end of the runway, uh, decomposing in a sweltering tropical sun. But of course, that didn't happen. Otherwise, I wouldn't be telling you this story. <laughs> So we got to the end of the runway, and they said, turn left into the forest. So we went left into the forest and walked for a couple of paces and sat down to wait, and, and wait uh, in basically terrified silence. Eventually, we were told to start walking again and head up the mountain. And this turned out to be a very long walk, uh, 21 kilometers in total, and made a, somewhat longer by the fact that although I'd remembered my date, I'd forgotten to bring my daughter's shoes. So she had to be carried. Uh, Fortunately, everyone was strong, and they were all very enthusiastic about carrying her. And actually, in retrospect, at least for us, it was, it was actually pretty nice to have her with us uh, because uh, she, uh, first of all, she made it, she sort of ensured that the adults kept it together. There was no point us kind of going into hysterics if their four-year-old was calm. And, uh, <laughs> although we certainly had every reason to. And then also Panamanians, even Panamanian soldiers, really love children. And so this little blue-eyed, blonde-haired, passport, Panamanian passport-carrying girl uh, who spoke perfect street Spanish uh, made us seem a lot more human to our captors. So we walked and we walked and we walked. And eventually, uh, around midnight, we came to the top of a hill in a clearing. Uh, they told us to cut our flashlights so no one could spot us from above. And we walked to this house, uh, which was bizarrely surrounded by 200 pairs of boots. Uh, we walked in the house, and this nice man greeted us. And he said, uh, come into this room. And so we went into the room. By this, as you can imagine, we were a little bit uh, shell-shocked by then. And um, came into the room, and he presented us with a book. It was the register, guest register to sign. Now, this was not the Hilton, of course. It was the, <laughs> but it was the Nagusagandhi Field Station, and he wanted a record of our visit, which I thought was really sweet. He was also the person who ensured that the soldiers took off their boots so they wouldn't ruin the beautiful wood floors. So by then, we were really, really tired, uh, and I was totally out of adrenaline, uh, but fortunately Agapita had uh, enough adrenaline left to realize that it would not be a good idea for us to sleep in a room with 30 young male Panamanian soldiers, so she ensured that we were slept safely that night by ourselves. The next morning, we woke up, and it was pretty clear that uh, we were going to be much more trouble than we were worth, because the U.S. government was definitely not going to be trading us for Noriega. So um, we had to be fed. 
etc. And also a, a, a nice, much nicer person, uh, older person, uh, was suddenly there, and in, and he was apparently the person in charge of the whole operation. And I, I think what was going on was that he was realizing that his future in Panama might be a lot better if uh, we didn't, uh, if we survived this escapade and uh, made it back to Panama City. And so he even, at one point, got me a box of tampons. My body was not cooperating to this whole ordeal. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and eventually brought us to the house of its, uh, a rural teacher. Now this teacher gave, brought all his food together and um, cooked us the first meal we'd had in quite a while. And then we watched on TV, his little TV hooked up with a, a coat hanger and saw President George H.W. Bush uh, announced that he thought the Smithsonian hostages had been rescued. Now, of course, we hadn't been rescued, but we were, <laughs> but we were getting closer. And in fact, um, <laughs> And in fact, one of the um, one of the team members who was a lot more astute than I was had managed to smuggle a radio, and so we used that radio to call uh, Stry headquarters and let them know where we were and say, "Please pick us up." Um, the next day, uh, we in fact were greeted by two enormous head helicopters. One of them with, that stayed up in the air with two really large guns to make sure no one would bother with the other helicopter, which was closer to the ground. And I'll never forget picking up Rebecca and passing her to this giant guy in the doorway, and then scrambling into a space that felt like as large as a living room. It was huge. And then we skimmed over the trees of the forest on our way to Panama City. For a while, I actually thought we might all die in a helicopter crash because we were only about a foot and a half above the trees. But it turns out um, that if you're in a hostile territory, it makes sense to fly really low because then it's much harder with the helicopter zooming by to actually shoot it down. So we got to the, um, I learned all sorts of things about warfare. <laughs> Um, so we got to the Air Force Base, which was in its way also incredibly surreal and crazy, as you can imagine. In fact, for two days, I couldn't place any phone calls at all. Finally, two days later, we reached, I reached my husband, who, uh, needless to say, was glad to hear from me, and uh, having enjoyed a very nice time in France. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he passed on a very useful piece of information, which was that Good Morning America wanted to know why I was still in Panama. And he suggested that I bring that piece of information to someone in charge. So I tried to find someone in charge, pass on that information, and sure enough, four hours later, I was in a plane heading back to the United States. It's amazing what the threat of the press will do. So we landed about 2 o'clock in the morning on Christmas morning in the snow. And we drove to DC. I had an amazingly emotional call with my family. My father went to church every Sunday after that for the rest of his life to thank, to thank God for my making it back. And then we had dinner not far from here in the Willard Hotel. The waiter was told who we were, and so he found a quiet place for us. And when Rebecca started to fade, he made a little bed out of tablecloths. So uh, about a month later, we went back to Panama. And we actually wound up staying there for eight years. And I have to say this experience actually made me feel much warmer about Panama and its people. I mean, after all, people, other than that first really crabby guy, um, people were really pretty nice to us, especially considering that it was our military forces which had invaded their country. And in fact, the Panamanians in the group, about half of them were Panamanian, had been offered the chance to leave and they refused to leave us, and they stayed with us through the whole ordeal. So it was really pretty uh, uh, powerful statement of, of what uh, the people of Panama are like. Now, of course, I was a little bit 
uh, shell-shocked by the whole thing. And uh, I spent a year building a dollhouse as therapy for my daughter, I think because I couldn't believe I'd almost gotten her killed for the sake of a few data points. And, um, and then also, uh, I have to say, I remain existentially terrified of guns. But apart from that, um, I survived pretty well. I don't often tell the story. It's a little emotional to, and draining to tell. It's not the sort of thing you say, oh, let me tell you the story about being kidnapped in Panama. Um, <laughs> Rebecca sometimes tells it. Um, uh, in fact, once when we were back in the United States, we got a call from her Spanish teacher saying, what's this story about your daughter's, your daughter's telling about being taken hostage in Panama? Is she making this all up? Oh, no, no, she's not making that up. <laughs> and of course, it made for a great college application essay. <laughs> So finally, I'm 69 years old, and when you're as old as I am, things start coming around full circle. And last December, almost exactly 28 years ago to the day of our ordeal, Rebecca got married. And her former nanny and uh, once hostage mate, uh, Agapita, now a dear friend, came with her family and joined us in the celebration. So I guess the moral of this story is all's well that ends well. Thank you. That was Nancy Knowlton. Nancy has been a scientist with the Smithsonian since 1984, first in Panama and now at the National Museum of Natural History in D.C. She's also been a professor at Yale and the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where she founded the Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation. Her work on coral reefs has taken her literally around the world, and she's spent so much time underwater that she long ago lost count of the hours. The Story Collider is so grateful to Jonathan and Nancy for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider with assistance from Story Collider's Program Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, and our intern Jamie Banks, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by our Chicago team, Lily B. and Jitesh Jaggi, and our D.C. team, Mariam Zaring-Hollam and Shane Hanlon, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. Next week, we'll be back with more live-recorded stories from our shows. Until then, thank you for listening. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.